Well, if you're a guest, we're delighted that you're here this morning. Uh, Hopefully, you'll find this a place that you can call home. We're in a series that has started last fall by going through the books of the Bible in the order in which they appear, and today we are at the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, we're actually going to take them both together sort of over the next two weeks. Uh, Because the books overlap so much, uh, we're going to read from each of them uh, each of these next two weeks. Every preacher that I know wants to serve with a positive and uplifting congregation. You know, it's wonderful to be in a place where harmony is obvious and conflict is minimal. Now, I'm blessed because Sherwood Oaks is is that kind of a place. Now, it's not perfect, mind you. There is no such thing as a perfect church. I mean, people here still disagree. They still have strong opinions in in areas. Uh, For instance, some, some people think the music is too loud. Others think it's not loud enough or it's too soft. Some, some say the building is too cold. Others think the building is too hot. Some think that we should sing more and study less. Others want to study more and sing less. Some don't care much for the sermons. Others have good taste. It's just, <laughs> it's just that we're not a perfect place, but we're a good place to be. This is a good family, and I count it a privilege to be a part of a good family like this. The church at Corinth, not so much. As a matter of fact, of all the New Testament churches, the church at Corinth would have been the last place I would have wanted to have served had I been preaching in the first century. It was a problem-laden church from the very beginning, and that was partly due to the culture in which the church grew. You see, Corinth was an international city where commerce from all over the Mediterranean passed through its borders. Corinth was located on this four-mile-wide isthmus that connected the northern part of Greece with the southern part of Greece, which means that all the traffic from the north and all the traffic from the east and west through the water regions came through Corinth. As a result, the city was notorious for its immorality. At one time in English culture, the word Corinthian didn't refer to somebody who, who was a resident of Corinth. It referred to any young man, a wealthy young man, who was reckless in his living and showed no moral restraint. That tells you a lot about the reputation of Corinth in its heyday. And in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, we find how Paul spent a lot of time in Corinth establishing the church there. As a matter of fact, folks, second only to his time spent in Ephesus, Paul spent more time in Corinth trying to get the church off the ground. He spent about 18 months there. And still, even under his great leadership for that length of time, still, the church seemed to struggle within its cultural background. And so Paul writes to them often to confront their problems. Now, we have two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians is what we call them, but in both of the books... They reference other letters that we don't have. So we know that there were at least four letters. There may have been more letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and say, well, why don't we have those? I, I don't know why we don't have those, but I can tell you this is probably because God knew that we needed the information that was in these two letters more than anything else. And you say, but I would like to have all of his letters to Corinth. Really? We're not doing all that good with the two we've got let alone try to add to that and try to get all the rest of the stuff read. We have everything we need to know to live the way we ought to live. But because he wrote so often, 
it suggests that the problems persisted for a long time. Now, just, just look at the problems that are laid out here in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul deals with divisions and, and uh, schisms that, that divided the church. Chapter 4 and 9, Paul has to defend his authority as an apostle to be able to speak into their midst. Chapter 5, there was a man who was having an affair with his stepmother, and the church was tolerating it. And Paul writes to condemn both the affair, the immorality, as well as the church's lack of interest in doing thing, anything about it. Chapter 6, Paul says, when you've got a problem with your fellow Christian, do not take that fellow Christian to a pagan court for a decision. You deal with that inside the body of Christ. He doesn't say you shouldn't go take care of problems. He just says, don't take your problems with your brother in the Lord and, and go to a pagan court. Chapter 7, Paul deals with the issue of sexual immorality and marriage. Chapter 8, Paul deals with the issue of how do you deal with food that's been offered to an idol in a pagan worship service. Chapters 10 and 11, Paul writes about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. They were coming to the time of communion and were not carefully considering spiritually or mentally what they were doing. In chapter 12, Paul deals with their abuse of spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, Paul deals with their lack of genuine love. In chapter 14, Paul deals with their disorderly worship. From the beginning all the way through chapter 14, it's problem after problem after problem. And I won't even take time to outline chap uh, 2 Corinthians because the problems overlap. And yet, folks, for all of their problems, I love the letters to the Cor Corinthian church. Because if God still loved them with all of their problems and still considered them to be a part of his family, the church, then he still loves us when we mess up. And he still considers us to be a part of his family when we drop the ball spiritually and morally. You see, I, I love the fact that you don't have to be perfect to be in the body of Christ. If all the churches that are talked about in the New Testament were perfect, we would be discouraged and we'd give up. But I take hope from the Corinthian church. God never said, you are no longer my people. Well, we come then to the theme of chapter 15. And Paul makes this glorious shift out of all the problems to this incredible picture. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 4 share one of my favorite themes, not just of the letters, but of the entire New Testament. These passages are God's sneak preview at what is yet to be. Now, the movie industry learned a long time ago that if when they've got you in the theater, they can show you a sneak preview of coming attractions, that, that they'll likely get you back when that movie debuts in the theater. You'll, you'll go buy a ticket because you want to see it. Now, now, what happens when you watch a movie trailer? Well, you don't get a lot of details, and you certainly don't get the whole storyline. And for sure, you don't get the ending of the story. What you do get is just enough to know, hey, I don't want to miss this coming attraction. Second, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 are God's sneak preview, God's trailer to the rest of the story. We don't have everything we want. We don't have all the details about the end of the scenery, but we've got enough to know that we don't want to miss this coming attraction. Now, you might expect something so, so glorious as all that to be presented to the 
church at Philippi, this joyful, optimistic church. They should be the first one to get the good news, right? No, it didn't go to Philippians. Or you might think because it's encouraging news that the church at Smyrna would be the first. This was a heavily persecuted church in New Testament times, that the persecuted church of Smyrna would get the good news, but they didn't. It was this problem-ridden, laden church of Corinth that got the glorious news, that got the trailer of where God was going. You say, okay, okay, what is the good news? What's the sneak preview? You ready for this? It's the promise that our own bodies, our own bodies will someday be resurrected. Of all of the lengthy chapters in this book, this passage is the most universal in its application. I don't care where you call home, how educated you are, what language you speak, what generation you are from, or what color your skin. One thing we all share in common is the fact that we will all die and we will all someday be resurrected. I love the fact that we had so many international folks here in our congregation. They were sharing in the service today. It gives me just this glimpse into what heaven must be like. But in order to share in that joy, we've got to be ready in this life for what is coming. And that's why Paul, I think, writes chapter 15. Now, we, can, we can't go through it in great detail this morning. The first part of chapter 15, Paul highlights the resurrection of Jesus, all right? He explores the, and defends the resurrection of Christ. And he says there's no one else like Jesus. He stands alone in history as the one and only who can bring us salvation. And what is it that separates Jesus from every other religious leader and would-be savior? It's that one thing, his resurrection. No one else in all of history has ever substantiated such a resurrection claim. And you say, well, Jesus raised others. Oh, yes, he did, but they all died again. Jesus is the only person who was ever resurrected never to die again. As a matter of fact, no one else in history has ever offered any logical or evidentiary proof that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. A lot of agnostics, atheists, skeptics have set about to write a definitive book proving he didn't happen, and most of them, when they get done really, honestly, looking at the evidence, write just the opposite book, the proof of the resurrection. Because when you really look at all the evidence, there's only one conclusion to draw. I really like this observation from Peter Larson. He writes, he says, despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left through a door marked no exit. The resurrection isn't optional. It is critical to our faith. You deny it, and, and Christianity crumbles. You cannot say, well, you know, I like Jesus. He's got some really good teachings. I'm just not into this uh, resurrection business. You can't do that. It, it, it's one package. You cannot separate it out. Uh, Paul writes in, in verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Do you understand what Paul is saying? 
Our entire spiritual experience, our hope of heaven, our need for forgiveness, our reason for worship, our purpose in existing, all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Take that away, and, and, and we're pitiful people. The hope is not for this life alone. It is for what is to come. Well, then that brings us to the second half of chapter 15, which is really the exciting good news. And Paul opens it up in verse 20. He says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what's that mean, first fruits? The first part of the harvest was always called the first fruits. The first apple picked from the tree, the first cluster of grapes picked from the vine, the first row that was harvested out of the field, that was the first fruits. And as you saw how that fruit looked, you knew the rest of the harvest was going to be like that. When the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits, Paul is meaning this, as Christ was raised from the dead, so your bodies are also going to be raised from the dead. What happened to him is going to happen to you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You mean this body is going to be raised? I was sort of hoping for a new model, something a bit taller. Something with a, with a bit more hair. Something that didn't taper out where it's supposed to taper in. I was looking for something with a little bit more class, a little bit more panache. Well, hang on to that thought because I think you'll be excited when you get to the end of the story here as we move on. In verse 35, Paul asked two questions. He said, some may ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? And to answer that, Paul takes illustrations from three different areas, botany, zoology, and astronomy. To answer the first question, how are the dead raised, he turns to botany. In, in verse 36, he says, what, do you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, i got to tell you, for me, I don't know how you feel, but for me, there is something about working in the soil. Uh, I have always been fascinated with farming. Uh, I have the highest regard for farmers who, who plant every season in the spring and they harvest every season in the fall. You know, a farmer does not plant in fear. A farmer plants in hope. They, they always have. From the very beginning of time, we've known that when you put a seed into the ground, it grows and produces a harvest. That's why when this winter cold and bleakness that we've been living through gives way to springtime. Everybody likes to get out and work in the yard and plant the seeds and plant the bulbs and plant the flowers because there's something about life that comes out of the ground that is exciting. And seeds have been doing that from the beginning of time. And, and did, you, you, did you know how long seeds endure? I mean, seeds can be there for a long time. Uh, houses that are, are 100 years old or more, you, you take the dirt that is under there the house, once it's torn down, and, and water it, and, and weeds will grow. The weed seeds have endured. As a matter of fact, there was a 2,000-year-old date palm seed found not all that long ago in the ruins of Herod's palace in Judea. They planted the seed, and lo and behold, it produced a date palm. 2,000 years old. That ought to bring you some excitement knowing that these seeds have a long shelf life waiting for the day when Jesus will raise us to new life. And have you ever thought about this? Seeds don't come with instructions of which end to plant up and which end to plant down. 
does a seed know? What if you get it in upside down? Does it mess with the seed? Does it not grow? No. Science calls it positive and negative geotropism. It is the combination of the gravity of the core of the earth along with the sunlight. No matter how you plant that seed, when it begins to decay and die, the roots go down toward the gravita gravitational pull of the core. The stem goes up, reaching toward the light. It doesn't matter how you plant it. It gets there. Which, which ought to add new meaning to when the New Testament says that we need to be deeply rooted in Christ. And we ought to walk in the light as He is in the light. And when that day comes at the end of time that our earthly bodies have been buried and have been decaying, they will give way to brand new light, life when the light of the world Himself comes to call us home. And we'll stretch out toward the light with new bodies. Well, Paul goes on to answer the second question then in verse 37 and following. He says, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another kind, uh, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is, is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind and the, star, and, and the moon another and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, don't get hung up on that word spiritual body, because people read that thing, oh yeah, yeah, we are spirits when we leave the body, and we hover around in life, and we, we bump into other, pass through each other. We're like air that you cannot contain, that you cannot see, that you can't hardly eat even feel. That's the kind of body he's talking about. No. He's talking about a body that is suited for life in a spiritual realm. He's not talking about the spirit because the spirit will be reunited with our resurrected bodies. There's a body that is designed for earth and there is a body that is designed for heaven. If I said that fish have an aquatic body, you wouldn't say, oh, they're, they're, they don't really have a body. They're just air that moves through the water. Well, of course not. The fish have a body. It's just a body that's designed to live underneath the waves. And so this new body is designed to live in heaven. You plant a kernel of corn, but that's not what you get. You get a stalk, and you get two, maybe three ears of corn on that stalk, and the, and, and the ears are just full of kernels. It looks similar, but it's much grander in nature. And later in chapter 15, Paul states that flesh and bone cannot inherit the kingdom of God, so he remakes us suitable for that heavenly realm. And I'll tell you something, the older I get, I'm just hunky-dory with the idea that God is not going to make us use flesh and bones for all eternity, because the more my body hurts, the more I look forward to a brand new body. The same is true of planets and stars. They're both heavenly bodies. They just are different. And folks, 
It makes no difference if you are buried in the earth, cremated, buried at sea, devoured by a wild animal. Just as the seed must decay to produce new life, so your body must return to its natural elements before you will have a new body. If God gave you DNA to begin with, don't you think God knows where your DNA is located to raise your body? You'll have a new one. Recognizable, I believe, but grandly different. Remember the difference in the body of Jesus following his resurrection? It will not decay. It will exceed earth's limitations. It will be a body suited for life eternal. Now, if your image of heaven is someplace where we kind of live in this slumbering subconscious kind of a thing, you you better change your attitude. If you think that heaven is someplace where, like I said a minute ago, these spirits just kind of roam and pass through doors and bump into each other and go through each other, that's not the picture. And you don't become an angel either. That's not the picture. You will be you with a brand new body. Quadriplegic author and artist uh, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote in her book, Heaven, Your Real Home. Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of who I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, she says, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better, brighter Johnny, so much so that it's not worth comparing. I will bear the likeness of Jesus, just as he was raised never to die again, so we too will be like that. And you say, okay, okay, why are we spending time on this sneak preview? Okay, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, this is God's truth. And, and I believe that all of God's word, all of God's truth is important for us to know. Second of all, if you don't know this, you're likely to be surprised at events down the road. And you don't need to be surprised. A patient awoke in the hospital after surgery to find himself next to a window in the recovery room, but with the blinds drawn. And, and, and as he was coming out of his anesthetic, he said to the nurse, he said, why are the blinds drawn? And she said, there is a huge fire in the office building next door, and we didn't want you to think when you woke up that you hadn't made it through your surgery. <laughs> you don't want to be surprised about events that are coming up in the future. So know and be aware. But, but I think the, the, the greatest reason for, for teaching and preaching about what is yet to be, even though it's just this sneak preview, is because you're going to face some tough times and some difficult moments in your life ahead. And when you know what the end is, you've got the strength and the courage to handle whatever life dishes out. There will be sorrow and difficult moments ahead for all of us. There's nobody, there's nobody that lives a trouble-free life. But but even if you could live a trouble-free life, you would inevitably and eventually die yourself. So on the tough days, when your body suffers through pain and sorrow, and when your heart breaks because of the sadness in your life, just remember this, this is not the final chapter of our book. You can live victoriously each day in this old body when you know the freedom of a new one is not all that far off. I read about a a prisoner of war camp in 1945 near the end of World War II where the American captives had cobbled together a homemade radio, and the guards didn't know about it 
uh, but they would occasionally get it out when, when they could, and they would listen to news broadcasts, and they had it out one day uh, when news was received that the German high command had surrendered and that World War II was actually over. Now, somewhere along the line, the guards at the camp had not gotten that news yet, and so they were doing just daily as they had been doing all that time. But the prisoners, uh, the, the, the men started singing and they started shouting. They, they started waving to the guards when they were out. They started speaking to the dogs. I mean, there was a change of attitude that was incredible. It took three days before the guards learned the story, and they left late at night and, and left the gate open. And the next morning, the prisoners woke up, walked out of the camp as free men. And you say, isn't it a shame they had to wait three days before they found their freedom? They didn't wait three days. The minute they heard that news, they were free men. It wasn't the wires that was keeping them captive. It was the, it was the news that they had been set free. They knew the door would someday be open. They knew the gate would release them. They knew they would be outside those wires. Their freedom came with the news that the battle was over and the end had been determined. And just like us, captives in this world, but because we have this picture, this preview of what is yet to come, we've already been set free by faith in God's promise. And that's why Paul writes these triumphant words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Ah, but what is unseen is eternal. 